When he came down from the mountain, large crowds followed him. Right away, a man with leprosy came up and knelt before him, saying, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. Reaching out his hand, Jesus touched him, saying, I am willing, be made clean. Immediately, the leprosy was cleansed. Then Jesus told him, see that you don't tell anyone, but go, show yourself to the priest and offer the gift that Moses commanded as a testimony to them. Just really quick as we go on, do whatever you have to do to lock in as we engage and read this. Don't zone out. If you have to close your eyes and just picture, I just want you to see what goes on here in these next two chapters as we talk about Jesus, the Son of God, not the little tame Jesus that we think about that tells us do's and don'ts with somebody that is wielding the power of the universe. Verse 5, when he entered Capernaum, a centurion came to him, pleading with him, Lord, my servant is lying at home paralyzed in terrible agony. He said to him, am I to come heal him? Lord, the centurion replied, I am not worthy to have you come under my roof, but just say the word and my servant will be healed. For I too am a man under authority, having soldiers under my command. I say to this one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes, and to my servant, do this, and he does it. Hearing this, Jesus was amazed and said to those following him, truly I tell you, I have not found anyone in Israel with so great a faith. I tell you that many will come from the east and west to share the banquet with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven, but the sons of the kingdom will be thrown into outer darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And Jesus told the centurion, go, as you have believed, let it be done for you. And his servant was healed that very moment. It takes people longer to describe their problems than it takes Jesus to heal them. Jesus went into Peter's house, and he saw his mother-in-law lying in bed with a fever. So he touched her hand. She didn't even ask. And the fever left her. Then she got up and began to serve him. When evening came, they brought to him many who were demon-possessed. He drove out the spirit with a word and healed all who were sick, so that what was spoken through the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. He himself took our weaknesses and carried our diseases. When Jesus saw a large crowd around him, he gave the order to go to the other side of the sea. A scribe approached him and said, teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. Jesus told him, foxes have dens and birds of the sky have nests, but the son of man has no place to lay his head. Lord, another of his disciples said, first, let me go bury my father. But Jesus told him, follow me and let the dead bury their own dead. As he got into the boat, the disciples followed him. Suddenly, a violent storm arose on the sea, so that the boat was being swamped by the waves, but Jesus kept sleeping. So the disciples came and woke him up, saying, Lord, save us. We're going to die. He said to them, Why are you afraid, you of little faith? Then he got up and rebuked the winds in the sea, and there was a great calm. The men were amazed and asked, What kind of man is this? Even the winds and the waves obey him. When he had come to the other side of the region of the Gadarenes, two demon-possessed men met him as he came out of the tombs. They were so violent that no one could pass that way. Suddenly they shouted, What do you have to do with us, son of God? 
If you come here to torment us before the time, a long way off from them, a large herd of pigs was feeding. If you drive us out, the demons begged him, send us into the herd of pigs. Go, he told them. So when they had come out, they entered the pigs, and the whole herd rushed down the steep bank into the sea and perished in the water. Then the men who tended them fled. They went into the city and reported everything, especially what had happened to those who were demon-possessed. At that, the whole town went out to meet Jesus. When they saw him, they begged him to leave. So he got into a boat, crossed over, and came to his own town. Just then, some men brought him a paralytic lying on a stretcher. Seeing their faith, Jesus told the paralytic, Have courage, son. Your sins are forgiven. At this point, some of the scribes said to themselves, He's blaspheming. Perceiving their thoughts, Jesus said, Why are you thinking evil things in your hearts? For what's easier to say? Your sins are forgiven? Or to say, Get up and walk? But so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. Then he told the paralytic, get up, take your stretcher, and go home. So he got up and went home. When the crowd saw this, they were awestruck and gave glory to God, who had given such authority to men. As Jesus went on from there, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the toll booth, and he said to him, follow me. And he got up and followed him. While he was reclining at the table in the house, many tax collectors and sinners came to eat with Jesus and his disciples. When the Pharisees saw this, they asked the disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? Now, when he heard this, he said, it's not those who are well that need a doctor, but those who are sick. Go learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. For I didn't come to call the righteous but sinners. Then John's disciples came to him saying, why do we and the Pharisees fast often, but your disciples do not fast? Jesus said to them, can the wedding guests be sad while the groom is with them? The time will come when the groom will be taken from them and then they will fast. No one patches an old garment with unshrunk cloth because the patch pulls away from the garment and makes the tear worse. And no one puts new wine into old wine skins. Otherwise, the skins burst, the wine spills out, and the skins are ruined. No, they put new wine into fresh wine skins, and both are preserved. As he was telling them these things, suddenly one of the leaders came and knelt down before him, saying, My daughter just died, but come, lay your hand on her, and she will live. So Jesus and his disciples got up and followed him. Just then, a woman who had suffered from bleeding for 12 years approached him and touched the end of his robe. For she said to herself, if I can just touch his robe, I'll be made well. Jesus turned and saw her. Have courage, daughter, he said. Your faith has saved you. And the woman was made well from that moment. When Jesus came to the leader's house, he saw the flute players and a crowd lamenting loudly. Leave, he said, because the girl is not dead, but asleep. And they laughed at him. After the crowd had been put outside, he went in, took her by the hand, and the girl got up. The news of this spread throughout the whole area. I imagine that Jesus laughed back after he did that. 
As Jesus went on from there, two blind men followed him, calling out, Have mercy on us, son of David. When he entered the house, the blind men approached him, and Jesus said to them, Do you believe that I can do this? They said to him, Yes, Lord. Then he touched their eyes, saying, Let it be done for you according to your faith. And their eyes were opened. Then Jesus warned them sternly, Be sure that no one finds out. But they went out and spread the news about him throughout that whole area. Just as they were going out, a demon-possessed man who was unable to speak was brought to him. When the demon had been driven out, the man who had been mute spoke, and the crowds were amazed, saying, Nothing like this has ever been seen in Israel. But the Pharisees said, He drives out demons by the ruler of demons. Salty. Verse 35, Jesus continued going around to all the towns and villages, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the good news of the kingdom, and healing every disease and every sickness. Let's pray. Father, I pray that we today would be reminded of your power. And that would remove any fear or trepidation that we have when you tell us to follow. We ask that you would do this for us. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Tell me about yourself. That's a question that you'll get asked in a conversation. You may get asked that if uh, you find yourself in a job interview or the first day on the job. Tell me uh, uh, about yourself. Let me just give you a heads up. When somebody says, tell me about yourself, that is a forest question, not a trees question, right? It's not, tell me about yourself. And you start off and say, well, it was a balmy morning on July 23rd, 1984, and my mother felt pain in her lower abdomen. And uh, they don't want all of that. Tell me about yourself. They want generalities. Hey, in a nutshell, can you just tell me what you're about? You don't even have to tell me your life story in order. Just get all the important parts, put it in there, and tell me about yourself. Because what we find out is that if we know somebody or we know who they are, then we know what we should expect of them, and we know how we should respond to them. Matthew chapter 8 and 9 is just that. Matthew has this goal, hear this, of painting a portrait of Jesus, who he is. So what he does in chapters 8 and 9 is he's going to give you, hear this, 10 miracles that Christ does. Half of the miracles in the book of Matthew are located in the chapter that we just read. And he's not going to put them in order He just puts them all here. He gives you this list in order to overwhelm you. That you would sit this and read this, and when somebody says, tell me about Jesus, the thoughts that you have of him, of just being a good teacher, somebody that just gives good advice, somebody that you go to for counsel, that all of that would fly out of the window, and you would realize the amount of power that Christ has. And the only reason that I bring that up is because if you mistake somebody's identity, you go to them and you don't know what to expect and you don't respond to them rightly. I 
the, the reason why we put these two chapters here today and are trying to spend this time to go through all of this is because I believe so many of us that have been familiar with Jesus have an anemic view of his power. Grown up in church and we're used to hearing his statements, all the advice, and all of this stuff is good. We just spent a few months on the Sermon on the Mount where we took all of his words as Jesus showed his power in words, and what we did was we broke it down into small pieces so that we could really get in and dive in and hear all of what he has to to say. As Jesus comes to show who he is on earth, Matthew 4, 23 and 24 starts off, and it says this. Now, Jesus began to go all over Galilee, hear this, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the good news of the kingdom, and this, and healing every disease and sickness among the people. Then the news about him spread throughout Syria. So they brought to him all those who were afflicted, those suffering from various diseases and intense pains, the demon-possessed, the epileptics, and the paralytics, and he healed them all. There's these two wings of the plane of Jesus's ministry on earth. Chapters 5 through 7 is his power in words. Chapters 8 through 9 is his power in deeds, his power in works. Chapters 5 and 7, we can break those down and that's fine. Chapters 8 and 9 is better ingested like a hamburger. Right, Kellum, uh, up until a few years ago, uh, Kellum didn't like hamburgers. He just liked the patty. Um, so he would just eat the meat. And I try to tell him, no, 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 listen, uh, a hamburger is not just the piece that you like most. It's the composite whole, right? You want to take a bite and get all of it. Matthew 8 and 9, this is the hamburger, the sandwich. So I want you to hear this. There's, there's going to be a lot of questions that you may have on this text, and there's going to be a lot of things that we're going to leave on the table. We're going to fly over eight and nine, but the good thing is when you fly over something, you see things that you miss when you're trying to walk through it on the ground. This is localized here into one part, um, and I just want to do my best Normally, I don't care if you take notes or not, but if this may help you to just grasp it, I've just tried my best to put a lot on, on, on the screen so that you can at least make sense of this whole. Um, this text is kind of like a good song or a good album. There's like these main songs, and then there's interludes in between, or like a good song, verses, and then there's these hooks, and I'm going to put it here on the screen. Here's the outline of 8 and 9. Matthew 8, 1 through 17. (laughs) Listen, Jesus is flexing. Three miracles. Matthew 8, 18 to 22, follow Jesus. He's going to talk about discipleship. Matthew 8, 23 to 9, 8, Jesus starts flexing again. Three more miracles. Matthew 9, 9 through 17, follow Jesus. 
And then it ends off again with Jesus flexing. What Matthew 8 and 9 does for us is it tells us this, y'all. Jesus is flexing to remove any fear that you have that comes with the thought of following him. Anything that would make you fearful of following Jesus, what he does is he shows that he's Lord of everything. So that when he calls you to follow and to give him your whole life, you're not worried about anything. He's going to prove that he's Lord. Or the main point is this. If Jesus is really Lord, then you, ha- you have to let him lead. If he's Lord, then he'll lead. If he is not leading, he's not Lord. Here's my four points to help us walk through this text. What we're going to see here is we're going to start off with a cure. Then we're going to see the key to get that cure. Then we're going to hear his call. And then lastly, we're going to have a choice to make. The cure, the key, the call, and the choice. First, the cure. Here's the cure. Jesus. Jesus comes on the scene to heal and to make whole. It would be like if somebody comes into the room and says, hey, y'all, I've got the answer. The first thing that would come into your mind is, what's the, what's the problem? And what Matthew wants us to know is it doesn't matter. In the Sherlock Holmes stories, they're written from the point of view of a guy by the name of John Watson, Sherlock Holmes' partner except John Watson didn't really do anything but record what he did. And there's this one point where he writes this. He says this, look, I became so accustomed to Sherlock Holmes' invariable success that the very thought of him failing had ceased to enter my mind. What he says is, I spent so much time with him that whenever a problem came through, I never wondered if he could solve it. I sat back and I said, man, I can't wait to see how he does it. This is what Matthew 8 and 9 does. Jesus comes and gives this solution. But the point that we're trying to get at is this. Look, Jesus has never met a problem that he couldn't solve. So what you're going to see here is Jesus is solving all types of problems. People that are diseased, lepers, people that had a stroke fever, bleeding, Jesus heals. What you'll find is that disaster strikes. There's this storm on the boat. Jesus calms it. Demons are oppressing people. Without their permission, Jesus comes and liberates them. People are paralyzed. They're blind and they have disabilities. Jesus cures them. Death takes place. Jesus conquers it. He puts it all here so that you would see it doesn't matter what the problem is. Jesus has never met a problem that he couldn't solve. And it's not just all types of problems. As you read here, right, guys like Luke and, and, and Mark, Luke was a doctor. 
So as he writes these stories, there's all types of details that are involved. As Matthew writes this, he removes all of the details because he's saying it doesn't matter. I just want you to know the common denominator is Jesus and his word. And what you see as you read through this is um, these little stories don't make very good stories because one of the parts of a good story is that there's this rising tension and it takes time to climax. And then it's resolved. With all of these stories, there's not a lot of conflict. Conflict comes. And it takes the author more time to describe the conflict than it takes Jesus to solve it. Listen, my daughter is two and a half years old. We have put her to bed 934 times in a row. She still has not gotten the hang of it. Last night, we were up trying to get her to bed, and we just got to a point where we just gave up, and we said, you win. Coming to the bed. I'm tired. Jesus has an easier time raising a girl from the dead than I have putting my daughter to sleep. He's never met a problem that he couldn't solve. And what I love about this text, too, as you go through these stories, is that he does it for different kinds of people. It's, it's not just what he does, but how he does it. So the same Jesus that has these two guys that intercede on, his, on behalf of their sick friend, and Jesus can restore health from a distance with words. The Bible goes to great lengths here to say lepers, women with issues of bleeding, people that are dead. He doesn't just speak to them. Do you know what he does? He touches them. Why is that important? Because based on this law or what would take place at the time, you didn't touch somebody that was unclean or somebody that was unclean didn't touch you because if they touched you, you would be unclean. Jesus says things are different with me. Jesus touches the unclean and makes the unclean clean. People stay away from enemies of Israel. These centurions, tax collectors, sinners come and kneel down before Jesus, and Jesus shows that all this power that he has from God, it's impartial. He does it for all different types of people. Even the demon-possessed who don't ask for help, they get it too. Jesus has never met a problem that he couldn't solve. His power is unmatched. And what you see in this story is this. The common denominator with all the solutions, hear this, is Jesus. In boxing, they have champions. But they have at times people that are called the undisputed champion. And what that means is that the World Boxing Association, the World Boxing Council, the World Boxing Organization, the International Boxing 
federation. All of them have their own titles. And in order to be crowned the undisputed title, you have to be able to win in all of those categories. Jesus takes on disease, death, distress, demons, disaster, disability, and nobody can stand. Matthew chapter 8, verse 17, it says this, and he did all this, look, so that what was spoken through the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. He himself took our weaknesses and carried our diseases. Israel at this time was waiting on this Messiah to come, this person that would be the fulfillment of the Old Testament prophecy and would set things right. Jesus comes in, and as he does all of this, Matthew looks back and says, look, 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 Jesus is him. And it's easy for us to read that and to say, that's it. The goal of Christ here on earth is to make all of us healthy. So what you'll get is some folks will take this and they'll say, if you really have faith and you really know that Jesus is the answer, that the same power that was at work here can be at work for you. And you don't have to be sick or burdened down or disease, death, disappointment doesn't have to come to your front door. Kind of. What Jesus comes to do, he doesn't just come to address the fruit of the problem, but the root. And so here's what I mean. Sin, sickness, death, disease, all of that came into the world as a result of sin. Jesus comes in, and he's going to address the root, the cause of all of that. And along the way, do you know what he will do? He does heal. He does bring physical healing and wholeness in the same way that your mom would cut off a sliver of turkey before the Thanksgiving dinner was done and give you a piece. I want you to have a taste of what will be one day. Some of us will have a taste of it now, but eventually, this is what I'm trying to bring. That's what Jesus does. And I bring all of this up to say, just to kind of set the scene, listen, if Jesus is your Lord, if you have put your faith in him, you have a savior that comes looking for trouble. Nobody coerces him to make this his ministry. There's nobody that finds him at 30 and enlists him into this work. It's his idea in the first place. And when Jesus comes in, trouble exits. So the question that I have for you is, what problem, what thing is on your plate right now that falls outside of the realm of these categories that Jesus has just proved that he's the Lord of? What's causing you right now to feel a sense of angst, fear, frustration, isolation, loneliness, grief, burden? What is it? Does it fall in the realm of disease, death, disaster, disability? If it does... 
I don't know what the problem is, but the Bible is very clear about what that cure is. And the reason why we read all of this at once is because we tend to treat these stories like fables. We take one at a time and we break them down and we try to find some meaning out of it that can help us in our day-to-day life. And, and we miss the sense of the whole. The sense of the whole is that Jesus is powerful, more powerful than any of the problems that you have. There's nothing that you have or hold on to that he can't handle. Jesus is the cure. While he goes looking for trouble, the other thing that we see here in this text um, is that he doesn't just find trouble. There's something else that he finds. So he's going to use his words here in this text to heal people, but then he's also going to use his words here in this text to point us towards the key to experience this healing and wholeness. He's going to commend people because of it, or he's going to correct them because they don't have it. If the cure is Jesus, that he makes people heal and whole, here's the key. The key is faith. Everybody that is weak, that approaches Jesus in faith, leaves whole. Faith is the key. Look, faith is not what does the work. Faith is just your ticket to get on. You go to the airport, and they drop you off at the airport, and you walk in through that door that says departures, and everybody that arrives at the airport with a boarding pass, you go to your gate, in faith, and you step on. Listen, your faith has nothing to do with the plane making it to its destination. Your faith is just your ticket to to get on and to ride. Throughout this story, I just want to point you to things that take place. Different people get the exact same response. Look here, Matthew 8, 13, 9, 22, 9, 29. It's all going to be up here on the screen. Verse 813. Then Jesus told the centurion, go, look at this, as you have believed, to let it be done for you. And his servant was healed that very moment. He just turned and saw her and said, have courage, daughter, he said. Your faith has saved you. And that woman was made well from that moment. 929. Then he touched their eyes saying, let it be done for you according to your faith. What you have in this story is people come to Christ in faith. Lepers beg. People that are bleeding beg. People of higher social class kneel and ask for his help. A woman interrupts Jesus on his way. Friends bring their sick and diseased and demon-possessed friends to Jesus, and do you know what you see here? Everybody that comes to him in faith leaves made whole. And Jesus looks, 
And these people that are made whole, he attributes their arrival at wholeness to their faith in the fact that he really is the cure. Look here in chapter 8, verse 26. It's not just that he commends, but he corrects. He said to them, why are you afraid, you of little faith? Then he got up and rebuked the wind and the sea, and there was great calm. Faith is the key to wholeness. But look here at chapter 9, verse 2. Jesus is going to remind us um, that wholeness is more than what takes place in our physical bodies. And brokenness goes deeper than our skin and bones. 9 verse 2 says this. Just then some men brought to him a paralytic lying on a stretcher. Look, seeing their faith, Jesus told the paralytic, have courage, son, your sins are forgiven. Can you imagine being his friends? If you saw that Jesus was a healer, and think of whatever ailment that you have or your parents have, cancer, blindness, chronic fatigue, and you come to him and Jesus says this, your sins are forgiven, would you be disappointed? I think we would sit here and say, well, no, I wouldn't be. Another question, how easy is it for us who have placed our faith in the Lord, who know that we have our sins forgiven? Do you ever find yourself coming into worship on a Sunday and it is hard for you to sing praises to God because you are preoccupied with some problem that he has not solved yet? What Jesus is saying right here is your most visible problem is not your biggest problem. The solution that you want the most doesn't mean that it's your greatest need. So what Jesus does in this story is he looks, and do you know what he starts to correct? Their lack of faith. So he says, what's easier? For me to say your sins are forgiven or for me to say words and for this guy to actually get up and walk? And look at what he does. He says, get up and walk. I'm going to bring physical wholeness. Why? So that you would know that I have the authority to meet this deep need. What Jesus does there is this is what we mean by faith. We don't just go to him in faith to solve the problems that we think that we have. As we go to him in faith, if he's really Lord, we go to him for the diagnosis of the real problem, and we trust when he provides a solution that we want, even if we don't want it. Four years ago, this Sunday, that truth was put on display here in this church. Elfrida Brown was baptized. Some of y'all haven't been here since the beginning, so y'all don't know 
Elfrida Brown. Elfrida Brown got up and shared her testimony here. And what she said was, I grew up here in the West End. I went to Brown High School at the time. I met my husband there. We got married. We had three daughters. And then she goes on and shares how though she grew up in a moralistic house and was familiar with Jesus, he was never the Lord of her life. And then she says in 2010, her mom died of cancer. And that's what caused her to start to seek the Lord. And then what she said was, in 2013, I was diagnosed of cancer. And she said, the Lord used my physical brokenness to show me my spiritual brokenness. She said, my family started crying. And I said, don't cry. Let's pray. And they prayed. And the Lord used her cancer to bring her to faith. Jesus made her whole. And three months later, she passed. Was that a lack of faith? Did Jesus really not cure her? Oh, Jesus solved her biggest problem. And right now, she is experiencing a wholeness, sitting face to face with her Savior that you and I only dream of at this time. Your desperation, your brokenness is not a curse. Whatever it is right now, it is a blessing in disguise because those of us with the deepest pains find ourselves prepared for the deepest joys because we're not blinded by shallow substitutes. We spend too much time arguing with people who think that they're doing just fine and not enough time saying, I'm just going to reflect on the good things that the Lord has done for me and that the Lord has done for somebody else. I'm going to remind myself through my testimony and others how the Lord heals and brings wholeness so I can have faith that he'll do the same thing for me even if it doesn't look like I hoped that it would. The reason why I bring that up and why I say that the key is faith, uh, the key is faith in Jesus. And here's what I mean by, by that. Nobody, none of us in here are faithless. Everybody is putting their faith in something to take care of the problems. Here's how you know where your faith is. When you find yourself face-to-face with problems, disappointments, distress, frustrations, disease, what's your first instinct? What's the first thing that you think to run to? And what do you 
check that instinct with? How do you respond to that instinct? Here's what I mean. If you have the wrong instinct, it doesn't mean that you don't have faith. Some of us have come from backgrounds or have lived lives where as soon as a problem comes, the very first instinct that we have is to go to a computer screen, to go to a bottle, to go to a friendship, to go to a relationship. That's the instinct. The question is, is there anything that overrides that instinct? That's what your faith is in. If your instinct is to go to those things and there's nothing inside of you that overrides that, then that's what you put your faith in. If your instinct still is to go to those things, but there's something inside you that overrides it and says, I need to go to Jesus, that's where your faith is. These chapters are ten testimonies of God's faith at work. I'm almost done. Faith is a loaded term. We hear of faith and we think mental ascent. All right, John, I'm going to lead here and I'm going to put my faith in Christ. I think the best commentary on this text right here is James chapter 2, 18 and 19, where James says this. You say you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith by your works. Even the demons believe and they shudder. He's saying, even demons hear Jesus' words and they get in line. Faith is something more than just mentally believing God is capable. Jesus is flexing, showing his power. And he gives us this call. And the call that he gives you and I is that our faith would lead us to follow him. And hear this, the call is all-inclusive. Matthew chapter 8, verses 18. He goes on and says this, when Jesus saw the large crowd around him, he gave an order to go to the other side of the sea. A scribe approached him and said, teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. Jesus told him, foxes have dens and Birds of the sky have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. Right there, what it seems like is that there's some guy that has seen what Christ has done, and he thinks, I can ride on Christ's coattails to get where I want to get. That I can put my trust in Christ, and that'll give me the worldly status and acclaim that I want. And so what Jesus does is he corrects this and says, wait a minute, if you're going to come with me, you have to check all your ambition at the door. Worldly security, you're not going to be able to hold on to that in the same way. Somebody that's eager to walk with him but has misunderstood what he said. Then he goes to this one, which seems yeah, a little harsh. You get this man that says, Lord, first let me go bury my father. And Jesus said to him, let the dead bury their own dead. That sounds cruel and that sounds harsh. Here's likely what's not being said. It is not likely that this man's dad just died and he has not been put in the ground yet. In this culture, within 24 hours, people were prepared and put in the ground. So if his father had actually died, he wouldn't be standing on the side of the road engaging in a conversation with Jesus. He would be at home mourning. It's likely that this man says, 
Jesus, I'm willing to do whatever you ask me, but here are the conditions. I've got obligations to my family. First, let me make sure I take care of those, and then I'll come with you. And what Jesus is saying is this this call that he gives to follow him is all-inclusive, which means it is a total arrangement, a total rearrangement of every priority that you have. Nobody can follow Jesus while simultaneously trying to set the terms and conditions. This call is all-inclusive. But here's what I love about this call. For anybody that would read that and feel scared, I don't have any security. I'm not sure how this will end up. The rest of the miracles are put here so that you would not fear following Jesus. So he just says, listen, if you come with me, that idol that you've made of worldly security, the house of your dreams, the home of your your dreams, Christ is saying, I don't even have a place to lay my head. What type of fear would that birth in you? That means that I'm going to be outside, left up to the chaos of what ensues. I don't have anything to protect me. And the very next story, Jesus is on the water, outside, and a storm brews. And do you know what he does? He shows that he's Lord of disaster, and he calms that storm. You talk about security. You can bunker down in a house trying to be secure from a tornado or you can ride in a boat with the person who made the tornadoes. That as he speaks, creation says, this voice sounds familiar. I better get in line. And then in the very next story, a commentator says this, and I want you all to hear this. He goes into this town. He sets this man free of demons. And do you know where he casts them? Into the very water that he just proved that he was the master of. That's a flex. We used to work out a few years ago, a group of us, and Paul Denard, he's probably outside parking. Uh, Paul uh, is a a short guy, but Paul got pretty big. Uh, I threw a birthday party a few years ago, and Paul shows up late to my party and comes in a tank top, muscles just all out. All the attention left on me and was put on. That's a flex. Jesus, he's not just randomly doing these acts. He's doing all of this, hear this, so that any fear that you have of following Jesus is put off in here. We think, Lord, I don't want to go with you because look at all of what I'll have to give up. Jesus is call of us. It's not meant to impose on our best life. It's meant to lead us into it. Yo, 
Christians, we as a church, we should be the most celebratory people on the planet because regardless of how things look outside, how the economy is, what gentrification is doing to the neighborhood, how authority is getting abused outside, we aren't those that ignore it. We are just those that say our hope and our joy stays consistent because any problem that is thrown at Jesus will bow now or eventually will bow one day. This is what Christ calls us to. And here's the choice. The choice is this. Um, Every call has to be answered. You can accept that and be led into rejoicing. Or you can reject it. Look at the end of Matthew 8 and Matthew 9. We we see the same things at the end. Matthew 8, verse 33 and 34 says this. Then the men who tended them, those sheep, fled. They went into the city and reported everything, especially what had happened to those who were demon-possessed. At that, the whole town went out to meet Jesus. When they saw him, they begged him to leave their region. David Garland says it like this. People were more comfortable with the demons that they knew than with a power they couldn't comprehend. They had become so accustomed, like us, who doubt Christ's power or don't want it, that there are things that plague us, our lives, our families, our friendships, our communities, and we've grown so accustomed to just quarantining them, saying, I'm just not going to go there. And when Jesus comes in and sets them free, you have a group of folks that say, get away from us. Why? Because if he really is Lord and has that kind of power over creation, then do you know what that means? There are no limits to what he can ask of you and me. There's there's none. And if you don't trust him, it's a terrifying thought to submit to. How has that worked for you? Are you sitting in here right now? Have you tried to solve your problems with your own power? And you come up against certain things and you've just grown to accept. This is the way that things are. This is how they have to be. I better make the best use of it. I'm here to tell you. You don't have to. You do not have to live that way. Jesus came to show his power to remove any fear that you have for leaving it all behind to follow him. Here's the good news of this story. For those of us that hear it and say, I know it, but I just can't get past that fear. At the end of nine, Jesus casts out demons and he's rejected by the Pharisees. But look at verse 35. 
Rejection of people doesn't stop his forward progress. 935 says this, Jesus continued going around to all the towns and villages, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the good news of the kingdom, and healing every disease and every sickness. Jesus comes, the light shines, people accept him, some people reject him, but rejection doesn't do to him what it does to us. It doesn't slow him down, it keeps going. You can close your eyes all you want to, but closing your eyes has never stopped the sun from shining. It only robs you of the beauty of seeing all of what the sun wants to shine on. So what Jesus does to people that have closed their eyes and have refused to see it, if they won't see it in his life, they will be convinced of it in his death. Jesus doesn't just spend his life in this gospel going around healing disease, disaster, demons, distress, and death in other people. What he does as he walks this journey, you talk about disease, being an outcast. The Gospel of Mark starts off, Jesus touches a man with leprosy and tells him, don't tell anybody. He's healed, tells everybody, and it gets to the point where Jesus can't even go into the town. Jesus didn't just heal that man. Do you know what he did? He traded places with him. That man was an outcast. Jesus goes out to heal him. He goes inside. This man is an outcast. Jesus, in this story, is casting out demons. Beings that should have been unwelcomed in God's creation and the response that people give him is they treat him like he's the ruler of one. Jesus is making the unclean clean. And people are treating him as if he's unclean. Even in his death, Jesus is mocked. On the cross, do you know what they said? This man spent his whole, whole life healing and saving others, but he can't save himself. They were wrong. Jesus has traded places with us in all these things. The only thing left that he hadn't taken on his back and conquered was death. Jesus took our death on his shoulders. And in dying, Matthew ends off with a centurion, a Gentile, saying, surely this was the Son of God. You have a Savior that has gone looking for trouble. And he hasn't just healed you of trouble. He's taken it off of your back and put it on his and he conquered it. He went to the grave, through the grave, and rose up and says, follow me. Listen. So that any fear that you and I have, saying this is the wrong decision, this is going to be bad, this isn't going to work out like I hoped it would, any fear is completely taken care of. If Jesus is really Lord, 
then you can have great confidence in letting him lead. I've gone way beyond my time, but I just want you to know this here. There's lots of details. We'll get through the rest of the gospel of Matthew and talk about the specifics and how we let him lead. Here is one way that you let Jesus lead, and it's the primary way. It's the first step. Your first step in letting Jesus lead is making the commitment to always let him have the last word. Your first step is to say, I'm going to make the commitment to let him have the last word. I don't know what it is. I don't know where he'll lead you. I don't know what struggles you have right now. All that I'm saying is that if he really is Lord, then your best bet at experiencing wholeness is allowing him to lead. And that comes from saying, whatever it is, God, you have the final word. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we pray um, that we would spend more of our time being reminded of your goodness and your power than we do even requesting you to intervene, Father. Because if we were just reminded, if we were just convinced, Lord, fear would shrink. Lord, the arrows of faith that you send would, they would deflate the balloons of fear that are in our lives and show that what we're scared of is hollow, full of nothing, Father. So, Lord, I ask that you would help us to follow you so that people that are far from you can know you and see you. Give us the grace to do that. It's in Jesus' name we pray.